Welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Here we are. With a movie we've already done, right? I think so. By the same name? 40 years later? We're doing Halloween 2018. Happy Halloween, Horrors. Happy Halloween. This was the first movie review we've ever done. Yes. Oh my gosh, I did not even make that connection. The first singular movie review we've ever done. And this is acting as a direct sequel, even though it came 40 years later and after many a sequels in the franchise. I have already peppered Shay with question after question of, wait, but I thought you said this about the timeline. And I thought you said this about the timeline. But it is good to just try to erase all of the other films from your memory and act as if this is the only film to have happened after the original movie. Because yes, it does follow that timeline. So I'm going to dive straight into some pre-plot trivia because that clears some of this confusion up. So this film actually inspired a generation of soft reboots for legacy horror franchises. Movies such as 2021's Candyman, 2022's Scream, and 2022's Texas Chainsaw Massacre are frequently cited as taking inspiration off of the film's approach to rebooting a horror franchise. These films, known as requels or legacy sequels, feature common tropes such as returning cast members, borrowing the title from the original, and sometimes ignoring some or all of the previous sequels to the original. So this was like one of the first that was like, we're just going to look at the very first one (laughs) from 1978 and forget that there was like 11 other movies in between and we're going to be like, fuck them. Let's just look at the original and we're going to make a direct sequel to it many, many years later. Sweet. So from the original 1978 cast, only Jamie Lou Curtis, who plays Laurie Strode, Nick Castle, who plays The Shape or Michael Myers, and PJ Souls, who played Linda, return. In this movie, PJ Souls plays a teacher as her original character Linda died in the first film. Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, she, I mean, she does the same thing that Lynn Shea does in Nightmare on Elm Street, where she's just like this English teacher. She's the voice, all that kind of stuff. So it's more of a cameo than anything else. But then obviously the original director, John Carpenter, returned as an executive producer and also is credited for his music score. Of course, the Michael Myers theme that we all know and love. Wowee. And the introduction with the reanimated pumpkin I thought was pretty sick. I loved the intro credits. (laughs) And it did really well. So at the time of its release, Halloween 2018 was the biggest horror movie opening with a female lead, the biggest movie opening with a female lead over 55, and the biggest opening for any of the Halloween films. It was also the second biggest horror movie opening ever after 2017's It in terms of box office returns. Nice. This is a couple years before I was getting into horror movies, so I was not paying attention. (laughs) But I'm glad that it did really well. So in this movie, we have like a whole new cast of ladies. So I'll introduce them really quick. So obviously, we have the legendary Jamie Lee Curtis returning as Laurie Strode. She's known from the Halloween franchise, Prom Night, which we covered, Terror Train, The Fog, Knives Out, Scream Queens, obviously so much more. Freaky Friday is our favorite. But <laughs> yes, we love Freaky Friday. She also won a Saturn Award for Best Actress for her role in this film. Oh, We have the actress who plays her daughter, Karen, who is played by Judy Greer. She's also in some Halloween sequels after this. She was in the Carrie remake. She was Miss Desjardins. And she was in The Village as Kitty Walker. And then we have the granddaughter, Allison, who is played by Andy Matichak. 
She is in some Halloween franchise sequels after this. She's in a movie called Sun. And then she's also in that movie Assimilate, which is that Invasion of the Body Snatchers lookalike that we talked about in that episode. She's in that. Okay. It's a small world. And then we also have Allison's friend Vicky, who is played by Virginia Gardner. She is in an episode of American Horror Stories. She's in the movie Monster Party and also Fall, which I've been seeing a lot on TikTok about the movie Fall. Do you know what the concept of that is? Wait, is that the one where they are thrill seekers and they're on top of the... High tower? Yes. Yeah, she's in that. Wait, is she the one that falls or is she the one that lives? The one that falls. <gasps> she's a blonde, I think. I have also seen a lot of that on TikTok. Yeah, that's and her. I was always very confused as to why, but maybe it knew. Maybe it knew we were going to cover this movie. I watched that movie in like 18 parts on TikTok. I just kept going to next part, next part, next part. Every yeah. time I looked at the comments, people would be like, I watched this whole movie on TikTok, <laughs> which I don't know. I was like, I wish I was invited to that. I totally did, though. That's amazing. I did read the whole plot summary for that, though. So I know the plot twist. But that's usually what I do. I do ruin things for myself for the sake of my own sanity. Well, that's pretty amazing because that movie seems really trippy, especially with like a mostly two-person cast. That's crazy. Yeah, I definitely think it's worth the watch. So the role of Allison, who plays Lori's granddaughter, became somewhat of a coveted role. Multiple popular actresses, including Lucy Hale and Emma Roberts, met with writer Danny McBride to personally talk about the movie. However, the studio decided that they wanted to go back to the roots of the first movie and cast an unknown actress, similar to how Jamie Lee Curtis was cast in the original. Aww. Even though she was a nepotism baby? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, and that's the thing. I like Andy Banachek. I think she did really well. Yeah. And like, I don't know if it's just because I know Lucy Hale from Pretty Little Liars and that I know Emma Roberts from Scream 4 and Scream Queens. But like, if I were to see them in the role that Andy had to play, I don't know if I would have taken the movie as seriously. Right. Well, let's get into it. We open with various close-up shots of ticking clocks and patients in the rooms. We are in some kind of psychiatric unit. A doctor's mumbling voice is integrated into these changing images. And then two podcasters are taking notes into a tape recorder. And they state for us that we are in Smith's Grove Rehabilitation Facility. And they are here to interview a patient who's been there for 40 years without uttering a word. Michael, perhaps? But also dumb idea, perhaps? If this gentleman has not spoken a word in 40 years, you think you're going to be the one to crack that silence? I don't know about that. That's the thing. I think the movie does a good job of portraying these podcasters as the wrong type of true crime podcasters. Their names are Aaron and Dana. And you can tell that Aaron's trying to give these overarching monologues that are really dramatic and really drawn out and like, what does the monster think? How can we get inside the monster's mind? And they're English. And they're English. It's so pretentious and it's so annoying and I hate these people already and I can't wait for them to get killed because, <laughs> spoiler alert, they will. I will say though, I kind of love that I hate them. Yeah. I think for who they are, they're really nice characters to have in this plot. So they meet with Dr. Sartain, who was a student of Dr. Loomis before he passed away. So again, you have to remember that the original movie took place 40 years ago. So obviously, Dr. Loomis was already like well into his 50s and 60s at that point. So he is well dead and gone at this <laughs> point. Also, keep in mind that Michael is now 61. 
So keep that in mind when he is doing all the things that he is doing in this movie because he was 21 at the time of the original movie. Because remember, he was six years old when he did his original killing of his sister, Judith Myers. And then the original movie took place 15 years after that, which makes him 21. Wow, thank you for that recap. You're very welcome. I did listen to our Halloween episode before this so that I could have some of this context. (laughs) Nice. So Dr. Sartain kind of gives a monologue about how he's been locked up for 40 years and how he's about to be transferred into a less than desirable facility where he doesn't get outside time and space and art class and whatever it is. And that studying Michael has been his life's obsession. Okay, we're getting some interesting vibes from Dr. Sartain. They go outside into this like checkerboard outdoor rec area. Like, the floor is checkerboard. Yeah, but it's not, like, black and white checkerboard. It's, like, mauve and white. And it's so strange because it's such a big area and it's all outdoors. It looks like such a strange surface to have outside. But it also looks like they use the checkerboard as a way to, like, tape off boundaries for different patients at the facility. So, like, there's these yellow lines that indicate these big squares that certain people can stay within and can't go without. So Dr. Sartain walks the podcasters up to Michael's yellow line. And the male podcaster is pestering him with questions of like, why'd you do it? Da da da. Why won't you say anything? And then he's like, I have a little something from the DA's office. And then he takes out Michael's mask from his bag and starts saying, you can feel it, can't you? Come on, Michael, say something, say something. But the other patients around him at the sight of this mask start getting very upset. They're yelling, they're screaming, they're acting out. Michael has proven that he has seen the mask just by looking over his shoulder, but we're not seeing his face very much. And that's what cuts us to the title credits. Yes, where, like we said earlier, we have that sexy reanimated pumpkin, (laughs) which resembles, of course, the first movie. And before we know it, we're back in Haddonfield. Aaron is with Dana in their car, and they are taking verbal notes on a tape recorder as they arrive at some kind of residence. We soon realize it's Laurie Strode's bunker. Okay, it's not really a bunker, but it's a house with a lot of fortifications. And they're at the front gate, and they ask to come in. They let her know they have three grand, and only after that price is announced, she rings the buzzer and lets them in the front gate. I was also thinking, like, is there any significance that they are English, that they are English podcasters and they're coming to America for this, like, salacious story and that, like, obviously she's been pestered by journalists and stuff like that before, but I was trying to think of the significance. It's funny because he says, (laughs) we have a podcast, and then the girl Dana (laughs) is like, we're investigative journalists. (laughs) I think it emphasizes how much of an outsider collectively they are. They have no idea what the community oral stories are. They're from a completely different country. And so to me, I thought that their English status was just supposed to emphasize how removed they were and kind of be a reason as to why they were so out of touch with the story because they did seem really out of touch with it. Even 40 years later, you know, when they're at the gas station later and we see people in their cars just looking at them like they know that they're a little different and that they don't know what they're messing with. So Lori opens her front door. There's so many locks. There's at least four or five that she unlocks. The podcasters ask to come inside. She sits down with them and they say, you know, we've done so many of these investigations and we just want to know since there's been like new insights, like we want to hear from you. And she's like, there's nothing to learn. No new insights. 
you don't believe in the boogeyman? Well, you should. Mm. So you could tell she's still deeply traumatized. She's just entertaining their questions. But their line of questioning is very insulting because they're like, tell us about you. Like you've had two failed marriages. You have a rocky relationship with your daughter. She got taken (sighs) away from you at the age of 12. Tell us about that. It's like, yo, what the fuck? (laughs) They are such pot stirrers. They want the drama, they want the tea, and they don't seem like they'll stop at much to get it. She says, Michael Myers killed five people, and he's a human being we need to understand. I'm twice divorced, I'm a basket case, and you want to know about me? So she's pretty much like looking at like, what are you trying to get out of me? But shortly after their unsuccessful interview, Laurie decides that time is up, she takes her payment and promptly kicks them out. And then I said, best scene transition. (laughs) All of a sudden, we are getting a POV shot as if we are in the back of a cabinet underneath the sink looking out. And there's a random man that later we find out to be Karen's husband, Lori's daughter, Ray, saying, you want to shit under my sink? I will murder you and your whole family. (laughs) And it just comes out of nowhere. But he's laying mousetraps. Yes, you get the introduction to Karen, who is Judy Greer, with her husband, Ray, and then their teenage daughter, Allison, who is dating Cameron, who maybe comes from a bad family. I just wrote, dad is funny, lol. Like, he's talking about how he used to do peyote with (laughs) Cameron's dad and how he learned how to do drugs because of Cameron's dad and all this kind of stuff. Allison's in the honor society. She's on honor roll. She seems like a very good kid. Allison asks her mother, did you ask grandmother about the family dinner? Because they're going out to a family dinner that night to celebrate Allison's induction into the honor society. And Karen seems very dodgy about it. She's like, oh, you know, like I did talk to her yesterday, but grandmother's agoraphobic. I tried, but she said she wasn't going to be able to make it. But very quickly, we're cut to a next scene where Allison reveals that she invited her grandmother personally and that her mother lied about it. Yes. And she is walking with her friends on the way to school as she is revealing to us, the audience, this information. Her friends are Dave and Vicky. And I believe Dave and Vicky are dating. This is a scene that, to me, very obviously mirrored one of the scenes in the first Halloween movies, which was kind of cool to see. And Dave also seems very out of touch. He's like, there's worse stuff happening today than what happened to your grandma. Like, it's not a big deal. Hey, do you want to blow up this pumpkin? And then whips out, I don't know, a quarter stick of dynamite? Quarter stick of dynamite just reminds me of Would You Rather when it got taped to that guy. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. You think? Yes, it has to be bigger than that. It looked so aggressive and I was unsure of where he would have found such a thing. But they put it inside a pumpkin head and blow it up as they run away like the children that they are. And it's cute because it resembles the first Halloween movie. Next scene, we're introduced to Allison's boyfriend, Cameron, and his funny friend, Oscar. They establish that there is a (laughs) Halloween party and that Allison and Cameron are going as a couple costume and that Oscar's pretty much just like the funny friend. Okay, we move on to a classroom scene (laughs) where they are talking about Frankel's interpretation. And I thought this was interesting because in listening to the original episode on Halloween that we did way back when... This is an exact mirror of the original where they're talking a lot about fate. And in the original, the whole sentiment of the classroom scene is that fate is immovable and you are bound to fate. But in this movie, 
the quote is completely different. It's saying that like fate can take a different course. Even in the most disparaging conditions, life can find its meaning. So I found that very interesting because in the original, it's talking about fate is immovable. You're destined to certain things where this is saying like fate can take twists and turns. And there's also a mirroring scene because Allison is looking out the window and she sees her grandmother, Lori, standing outside the classroom window, very much in the same way that Michael stood outside of the classroom window in the original. The next scene we see is Allison outside. She has met up with her grandmother by the track. Lori gives Allison the bundle of cash that she got from the podcasters, which is super cute. Interestingly enough, despite just having three grand handed to her, Allison picks this moment to pick on Laurie about what is going on with her and her mom, Karen. She basically tells Laurie, you need to get over Michael, forget about it. So then Laurie says goodbye, leaves her there at the track in obviously a mode of tension, and then goes home to do some target practice on some plastic mannequins. So then we get a scene of the podcasters reviewing tapes of Dr. Loomis, and essentially Loomis's sentiment from all of his tapes are, Michael's life should be extinguished. It needs to die. Like, there's no benefit into keeping him alive. And as this is going over, there is images of patients being loaded onto a bus from Smith's Grove to be transferred to that different facility as Lori is sitting in her car and drinking vodka and crying with a gun and screaming. Like you could tell she's very much fucked up and very much paranoid that things aren't going to go as planned, but she watches as the bus departs from Smith's Grove without incident. And I'm sorry, I know I let out a very inappropriate laugh, but it's because I saw my note from the scene that comes next. (laughs) Oh, please tell me. Well, it's the family dinner. Okay. And we love a family dinner scene because we know that at least one thing is going to go wrong. In this case, it's a couple different things. The family is getting to meet Cameron just like they knew they would. And I wrote, Ray is wild. (laughs) He is, of course, telling Cameron all of the wild stories he remembers with his dad in their youth. There is a little bit more mother-daughter tension sprinkled in there about grandma. Allison is asking again, did you invite grandmother? Mother is confirming again, yes, I did, but no, she probably didn't, just like the first interaction. And then, of course, Laurie has arrived. She is drunk and still drinking. She grabs Karen's wine glass and starts chugging it. Karen is very quick to be like, I thought you stopped drinking. Please stop. This is why we don't reach out. Like it gets very tense very quick. I feel bad for Cameron in this moment because he's just like, yo. (laughs) The only time you feel bad for Cameron. The only time I feel bad for Cameron because (laughs) up until this point, he's been doing very well. Yeah. Lori sits down at the table. She starts crying. She's like, I saw him. I saw the shape. I just wanted to kill him. Karen tries to be reassuring. Like, oh my God, we'll take you home. Like, it's okay. It's all over. But Lori ends up storming off and Allison chases her grandmother and ends up comforting her in the parking lot. And then later, you know, Lori leaves to drive home and Karen reveals to Allison like, hey, I'm glad you saw that because that was my entire childhood. And we get flashbacks to Karen's childhood where we see that Lori raised her to shoot guns by the age of eight. She learned how to fight. She was building a bunker. 
Karen expresses, hey, I had to unlearn all of this neuroses and paranoia away from her. I'm just glad that you didn't have to go through that. But that's the truth of living with your grandmother. And the men are comforting. You know, Cameron's trying to make Allison laugh. And Ray is trying to reassure Karen, Lori's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. But it's a hard situation because not only is she drunk and obviously has a lot of instabilities, but like you can tell that this paranoia and these issues are affecting the family even way after the events of 1978 occurred. Speaking of family trauma, we immediately cut to another example of family trauma, where we have a father and son driving in the nighttime in a pickup truck on the way back from hunting. We also get a dramatic moment between the two of them. This son confronts his dad about how he thinks it's unfair he chose tonight to go hunting when he knows that that's the night he has dance. And he tells his dad that it, quote, really hurts me in the heart. Well, he says, like, dance is really my thing now. It, like, gets me in the heart. And yeah. that's, like, my favorite part. Of and I wrote that. I was like communication skills okay like this boy is like this is what happened this is how i feel about it it's not okay and, and he's he, like what 13 maybe at most at, at most, most. <laughs> he is a young person and i was like this is compelling like will this be a spinoff one day will we get a prequel <laughs> like how did we get here <laughs> but of course this moment is quickly interrupted they come across the transportation bus in a ditch and a bunch of wandering patients. So dad gets out to check on things because even though he's a little bit out of touch with dance life, he's still a nice guy and he wants to make sure everyone's okay. I was just upset. He's like, Lumpy, you stay here and call 911. I'm like, Lumpy? Wait, he said Lumpy? Lumpy. Why did he call him that? I don't know. I don't know what kind of nickname that is, but I'm like, Lumpy? Okay, missed that. Interesting little tidbit to consider. And so little man calls the police and reports the accident. He gets out shortly after to check on his dad armed with his hunting rifle. And he finds a dead police officer. And then I wrote, oh shit, not dead. Because of course, there's a bit of a jump scare where he wakes up, tells the boy to run. But instead, the boy yells for his dad. He's trying to find his dad. He checks on the bus to see if maybe his dad had wandered on. And the doctor jumps out and says, don't shoot. But he's literally like jumping out and scaring this boy. So of course, the boy accidentally shoots him. And the boy tries to flee the scene. But Michael has made it into the car and strangles him to death. You know what that scene with Dr. Sartain reminded me of? What? It was Emily from Ready or Not, where she just keeps shooting the wrong people. <laughs> Like, she just keeps killing the the help and the wrong people. Where it is just like that. Don't shoot. He's why like, does this keep happening Like, to me? why would he do that? But he's like a kid. Like, he's just scared and, yeah. like, trigger happy. But that... No, not... I mean, not the kid. Oh, Dr. Right, right. Sartain. It's like, yeah. oh, this person has a gun. Like, he knew he had a gun, obviously. He right. said, don't shoot. Right. So it's like, don't you think you would try maybe to, like, yell it first? So you would keep yourself out of the way of a bullet? I don't know. But whatever. Did you recognize the familiarity of how that boy died? It was giving girl in a car in the garage. Annie. Yeah. Annie. Yes. And she was also strangled. But later there's that scene with a motorcycle in the garage, which I thought might be the new car in the garage, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. It was a fake out. It was. Right. There are many fake outs in this movie. 
So then we find out that Sheriff Hawkins is on the case. And if we forgot, which we did forget because the (laughs) top plot lines in the Halloween movies, I hate them all and I don't care about them. But Sheriff Hawkins is on the case. He gets there, sees that the dad's neck was fucked. Like that shot of the dad getting killed was crazy and finds Sartain alive. And then we jump cut to October 31st. So it is Halloween and the podcasters visit Judith Meyer's grave. This is where I just wrote, fuck Aaron. Oh my God. Like he's giving a narration of how like she died while this, I don't know, tour guide or I don't know who the fuck she is, is like looking at him like, uh, like he's romanticizing how she was killed. And I think this movie's so smart in that regard of just how influencers or some podcasters will treat true crime as something to be like moved by Mm. and that it's not as fucked up as it is which Mm -hmm. i mean we both listen to true crime it's not like it's all bad but i think that it's hard to do right and very easy to do wrong Ooh, i agree and these are people that are doing it wrong (laughs) yes aaron especially you can tell he fancies himself a poet he's like i got an a in english class in high school i am so better than everybody else (laughs) but a little bit later at the hospital Of course, Dr. Sartain is there being treated and a few of the officers are trying to put together the pieces and they create quite the image, which is like, how is it possible that Michael Myers, exactly 40 years after his prolific babysitter murders, was being transported on a bus with not even criminals, just psychiatric patients, and then overtakes the bus and escapes? It is quite unbelievable. It feels almost far-fetched. That something like that could have happened, don't you think? And that Sheriff Hawkins is the only one taking it seriously. Yes. Like, no one else seems to be taking it seriously. At this point, maybe he's not the mass murderer. He has obviously a big impact on Lori, and that's who we're following. Right. But since Hawkins was the first on the case, like, this means something very different to him. True. And we see him have this investment. Then we get to the podcasters. They're at a gas station. I think this is like my favorite sequence of the movie in terms of just Michael being brutal in a way that I like. Yeah, this was like the only part of the movie. And I'm thinking about Orphan First Kill, where like the first time I felt myself being like, am I on Esther's side? It was kind of like this with Michael, because of course, he's going after the podcasters, and we have already been disliking them a little bit. So it was a moment where for the first time ever, I was a little bit on Michael's side. Yeah, so Dana, the lady podcaster goes to the bathroom. We see Michael enter the bathroom. He's like kicking stalls open while Aaron is filling up on gas. He goes to pay the gas station attendant, but sees him on the desk, fucked up, dead. And then he walks into the shop and sees the mechanic dead and doesn't have a jumpsuit. And then Michael is trying to open Dana's stall, but instead puts his hand over the top of the stall and drops a bunch of teeth. Ew, so twisted. I loved that. I loved it too. I felt like that was so detail oriented (laughs) for Michael. I was like, Michael, you're really thinking about the details here. Okay. You're really trying to creep him out. Yeah, seriously. And then Dana does what I wish the dude in Sleepaway Camp did. She starts crawling under the stalls, trying to like get out in a way. I'm sorry, but I had a problem with that. Oh, you did? Because he had just opened those stalls. They're unlocked. Right. So she's going to sacrifice her position in a locked stall to put herself on the floor at the bottom of an unlocked stall? That's a good point. I mean, look, I don't know what I would do. Like the instinct, of course, is valid. 
I don't know. She's fucked. And I don't know. He had just opened those stalls. So in my mind, I'm like, isn't it fresh in your mind that those stalls are wide open for him to just pop in? Well, something that I liked is that we did follow her opening like the first two stalls that were closest to the door and both of them being gross. And then she went to the one farthest from the door. So I kind of liked the idea of she at least knows that those stalls are open and closer to the door than she is right now. So she could maybe run out. True, true. That's true. Ah, She is so fucked and you know it. So she's crawling under these stalls. Michael's grabbing at her legs. She's able to fight him off. And then Aaron enters and Michael beats the shit out of him. He uses Aaron's face as a battering ram. (laughs) Yes, yes, he does. For Dana's bathroom stall door. To me, it's like a commentary on the vanity that he has very clearly displayed. Absolutely. Which was so wowee. But also they don't show Aaron dead. They show him bleeding out, but not dead. No, Dana's dead. Dana's dead. And they also show the police later finding her body, but they never show them finding Aaron's body. They never confirm him being dead, do they? I mean, in my knowledge, he doesn't come back, but that's not to say he couldn't. Right. I thought that that was a really interesting kind of detail there because, well, of course, now I'm thinking, what does this mean? Are they not canonically dead? I don't know. And I noticed that Dana dies very much in the same way that Bob dies in the original where she's strangled and like lifted off the ground and then eventually her neck is snapped, which isn't exactly how Bob dies, but the lifting off the ground I noticed. But after that, he goes to their trunk and takes his mask. So at home, Laurie is in the kitchen and she hears the news on the TV. So she right away goes into lockdown mode and reveals that she has a hidden bunker under her kitchen island. I loved this. Very cool. So at the click of a button, her kitchen island moves to the side and she has access into a basement that has like food, provisions, weapons. Yes. Then we cut to a scene where Karen arrives home and notices her back door is open. She calls for her daughter, no answer, her husband, no answer. And we're starting to get scared. But it turns out, no, it's just Laurie. (laughs) She has easily gained access into her daughter's house because of an open side window. And she chastises her for not even having an alarm system in her house, despite how she was raised. She, like, runs down the stairs and like, gotcha, you're dead. Like, (laughs) like, as if she's running a drill on her. It's very (laughs) funny. And, like, that's the thing, though. Like, in this scene, I think you start to see how unstable Lori is. The entire time she's talking to Ray and Karen, she's pointing a gun at them. And it's like, oh, fuck. Okay, like, this person is unstable. Ray is like, can you put the gun down? Like, you're in my house. I can protect my family. Lori's unwilling to do that. And Karen and Ray have to, like, force Lori out of their house. And it's like... We know that she has a reason to feel as she is. But if you're in Karen's position or if you're in Ray's position, it's like, oh, my God, crazy grandma. She's Mm -hmm. doing these things again. Like, it is sad. Elise and I had talked prior to recording about how, like, you know, we love Sydney Prescott because she comes back every movie like, all right, what the (laughs) fuck do I got to deal with now, right? (laughs) But I enjoy that this movie has a very realistic portrayal of PTSD or whatever you want to call it where... Lori had a very fucked up thing happen to her, and this has impacted the entire rest of her life. She traumatized her daughter. She's traumatized her granddaughter. She has lived her entire existence around the possibility that Michael Myers could come back and get her again. 
So I like that we're not seeing a clean cut final girl. We're seeing somebody who is an addict, who is irrational, who is being torn apart publicly because you just can't get over what happened to you. And I think this scene is really the time where we can get on Karen and Ray's side because otherwise like, yeah, of course we're team Lori. But like, if your mom like broke into your house and is pointing a gun at you and they're like, oh my God, the shape is coming. It's like... (laughs) Dude, calm down, you know? Yes, yes. Ugh. But, you know, shortly after, or immediately after the scene ends, we cut back to the gas station where the police have arrived, and they, of course, are inspecting the scene of the murder or murders. And Laurie is there. She has arrived, and she's observing from behind the tape. But shortly after, she leaves, and night has arrived. There are kids in costume running around. Halloween is here. This is the shot of the movie. <laughs> okay. There is a very long unbroken shot in this movie that's like a one oh. that they had to do. And is this it's oh, with God, Michael? It's fucking good. <laughs> so first of all, you see Michael walking into an undescript shed, grabbing a hammer. Like the camera doesn't break from, from like here on out. We have a tracking shot, ladies and gentlemen. For a very long time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The camera follows and a lot of it is looking through windows as things are happening and it's just so well done. He goes into this kitchen, kills this woman, trades the hammer for a knife because obviously that's his favorite thing. He hears a baby crying, approaches the baby crying, leaves the baby crying. Okay, we thought he was going to kill a baby, doesn't kill a baby. Camera follows him out the front door. He sneaks into another house, kills another woman. It's hard for me to describe and give justice to how well this is shot because the shot does not break. It's following him the entire time. And something that I love about this shot is that it introduces two characters that don't mean anything in this movie, but that are stars in Halloween Kills. Seriously? The couple that's arguing about the stethoscope, they're like the doctor and the Uh nurse in the driveway. They play a major part in Halloween Kills because this takes place in the same night (gasps) and Michael approaches and you see them like see him and they're like, oh, what the fuck? And then they pull out and go to this Halloween party at the bar. They are major characters in the next movie. So I like that they do this. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. It's just so good. Like, it's just so good. It is good, but it's also heartbreaking because he's just totally out killing random people. And the scene where we are looking in through the front window as we see a woman talking to her friend on the phone, hearing the news that clearly Michael has escaped. So she goes to her window to shut the blinds and peer out onto the street where Michael has already snuck up behind her and stabs her to death. And it's like, oh, you were so close. You had the information. You were shutting the doors, locking the blinds. You were doing everything right. Well, shutting the doors, locking the blinds. (laughs) (laughs) Shutting the blinds, locking the doors. And you just missed it. She just missed that cutoff. I love that we're watching her talk on the phone, though. And in the corner of the shot, you see him going into the back door. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. Yes. But at least they make it super quick, which for me meant a lot. (laughs) So the next thing we see, we see Allison and Cameron as Bonnie and Clyde at the school Halloween party. But they are gender flopped. So Cameron is Bonnie and Allison is Clyde. They're so cute. They're both just (laughs) great. They're the fun couple. Yeah. Are you serious? The fun couple, they gender flop. Mm -hmm. Bonnie and Clyde. Why are they so cool? Everyone is envious. I know it. I can feel it. Meanwhile, Vicky is babysitting Julian, who I think might be my favorite part of this movie. All I have to say is thank God for Julian. Thank God for Julian in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because Vicky calls Allison at the party and is like, Allison's like, oh my God, I'm having so much fun, but me and Cameron will come later after Julian goes to sleep. It's like, yeah, Dave is bringing some Alakazam. And I'm like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> and then, so Vicky, you know, ends up hanging up the phone and then we're in the room with Vicky and Julian, who is the little boy that she's babysitting. And he's like, I know you're talking about smoking weed. Don't lie to me. <laughs> Vicky's like, no, no. And Julian's like, that alakazam? Obviously, he knows that she's trying to use some kind of code word for weed. He's like, you used to be my favorite babysitter, but now I'm here clipping my nasty ass toenails because otherwise you'd be reading me a story and putting me to bed right now. And he's just, he's so funny. He is so funny. And he is, oh my gosh, he just like, man, he could roast you. I feel like he could spend five minutes with you and immediately know exactly what your biggest insecurities were, how to make fun of you, but also how to be so amazing and funny at the same time himself. For me, one of the only examples of comedic relief in this movie that actually landed. Julian is one of the best characters in this movie. Absolutely. 100%. But Vicky puts him to bed. You could tell he's suspicious of the closet, but he goes to bed. And the next scene we see, Allison is coming back into the Halloween party after talking to Vicky on the phone and sees Cameron talking to this girl and this girl kisses him. Mm-mm. And Allison sees, Cameron sees her see and then chases after her as she runs away. And then he just becomes a little gaslighty fuck about it where it's like, I don't know what you think you saw, but she just whispered something in my ear and like, blah, 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 blah. I hate him. I hate it's him. Bad. So then her phone rings. Of course, we know it's her family trying to get a hold of her because Michael's on the loose. Cam immediately takes her phone and I wrote, throws it into some yogurt? What does he throw it into? I was like, not the phone in the pudding. (laughs) (laughs) It is like a punch bowl size of something that is super viscous. Some gelatinous. Yeah, like, what is this? And also, like, why are we in, like, a back closet? What is this food station supposed to be? I have no idea, but phone is down for the count. And of course, tension is rising because we know nobody can get hold of Al. I liked Cameron up until this point too. Like I had such hope for him. I had such hope for him. Yeah. And he was a piece of shit because if you look at the scene, the girl (laughs) kissed him without his consent. Right. It's just the fact that he tried to play it off. Exactly. That was what was bad about it. She pulled him aside. She was trying to get to the bottom of it. She was trying to get to the bottom of it. And he didn't like that. And you know what, Cam? That means I don't like you. So thanks. You get what you deserve in Halloween Kills. Anyway, <laughs> we see Vicky washing some dishes. There's a scary shot where we see through the window shots of sheets on the line, which we know from the original. This terrified me very much so. Dave does a little bit of a jump scare, who is her boyfriend. They're macking on the couch, and they hear noises upstairs. And then Julian comes down like, oh, my God, there's a guy in my closet. He jumped out at me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And Dave's like, oh, it's just Halloween, little buddy. And he's like, shut up, Dave. (laughs) I'm like, again, Julian, I love you. I mean, he's the most honest person. We know that he's telling the truth. And it's terrifying because no one is taking him seriously. So Vicky goes up to investigate. She says that she has looked all over the room. She scares him being like, oh, my God, go away. But, you know, she's just trying to mess with him. And Vicky is a cool babysitter. I like her a lot. She is such a fun, cool babysitter. She loves to be part of the banter. She tries to be nurturing and caring, but also cool, like a, more of a, like a sibling. Like she, ugh, I, ugh. So Dave goes out to the garage and starts revving up the motorcycle in the garage, which we think is going to mean something it doesn't. He's just being high and stupid. <laughs> but meanwhile, Vicky is putting Julian to bed and he's like, can you close my closet door? And she tries to close the closet door a couple of times, but it keeps running into something. So she opens it all the way and Michael is there. 
Uh, oh, okay. So he is out and he immediately attacks Vicky. Julian's like, oh, shit. (laughs) She's sliced. I think she's sliced across the hand and the arm because she, of course, pulls her arms up for self-defense. Julian escapes and he's standing on the staircase looking at her being pulled back into the bedroom by Michael. And she's yelling at him to get out, get out, which is so sad because outside Dave is kind of brought back into consciousness by the screaming because he had been hypnotized by this motorcycle. He grabs a knife and it looks like he's about to go have a standoff with Michael, but we never know what the fuck happens to Dave. No, we do. Did I miss something severely? You did. You did. (laughs) Okay, wait. So where is he? Okay. So (laughs) first, okay. First of all, for the hardcore Halloween fans in the audience, we get a season of the witch cameo. Season of the Witch is the only movie that has nothing to do with Michael Myers in the series. I told you about this in like a previous episode. You get the three masks of the witch, the pumpkin, the skeleton. You see those kids trick-or-treating, whatever. So Hawkins is on the scene and is responding to the call because Julian was able to make it out and run. So he called 911. Mm -hmm. And Hawkins discovers Vicky. We get the sheet ghost scare where Mm -hmm. she's sitting on a chair and we get a sheet ghost scare. And that's very similar to Bob in the original. Yes, Vicky is dead. And as Hawkins is walking throughout the rest of the house, he goes into the downstairs and Dave is staked into the wall, Bob style, like against the wall of the living room. I must, what, how did I miss that? I mean, he doesn't call attention to it. I won't say it's quick, but it's a shot where it's not lingering on it. I'll say that. I must have been typing something. Yeah, but Dave is killed Bob style where he is pinned (laughs) to the wall with a knife like against the wall. Okay, well, I'm glad we got the Bob callback. Bob has a lot of callbacks in this movie, honestly. This is where we get Laurie shooting Michael through a window, but then we find out it's actually like a mirror reflection of him and he's still in Julian's house. How did Laurie know to be at this house? Was she listening to, I don't know, like a police transponder? Well, we did see her listening to police transponders earlier, so maybe she did know to show up at Vicky's because that's where the disturbance was located. And then it's both Hawkins and Laurie trying to hunt Michael down, but they both end up losing him. This is also where we get some cool dialogue between Laurie and Officer Hawkins. She says, do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? And he says, what the hell do you do that for? She says, so I can kill him. And he says, well, that's a dumb thing to pray for. I think that this is an interesting moment because for me, it kind of flipped this narrative that Laurie was living in fear and more like she was living in hunt which is something that carries throughout the rest of the movie. So it's kind of like a perspective switch a little bit. We also see Sartain fanboying over Lori in this scene. You know, she says, you're the new Loomis. And he pretty much just gives some exposition that Michael can't stop, won't stop. He's not going to stop until he's dead. He's a killer. That's just what he does. And then we see Sartain going with Hawkins in a car where there's a conversation about how Sartain seems more concerned about Michael's motivations. Like he really seems to want to know like what's going on in his head and like what the origin of evil is. And it's a little too invested where Hawkins seems to be like, I just want to put a bullet in his skull because he's been doing all these things where Sartain is like, well, he's a warden of the state, so you can't harm him. So it's like, well, he's obviously doing nothing positive. He should be killed, but Sartain seems to be protecting him a little too much. So like, what the hell is going on? Intercut with this scene, we also get Allison walking home with Oscar, where Oscar's trying to tell her, you know, you're the prettiest girl in school. You don't deserve the way that Cameron treated you. 
Oscar does a big swing and misses hard where I hate him for this. I know. It seemed like he was setting up to flirt with her and I was like, please don't do it. Please don't do it. And then he did and it was bad. And he tries to kiss her and she pulls away and then leaves him in a neighbor's yard. And he's like drunk too, right? Yes. And then starts talking to who he thinks is the neighbor and the camera gives us a shot of Michael standing in the shrubs, which is like, even if... Let's say Michael is the neighbor, and it's good old neighbor man Judd in the corner. What was his name? Did we get a name? Not that we remember or care about. He's in the shrubs in a non-lit corner of the yard, far away from the house, standing stock still, looking so menacing. I just feel like even without any context, your fight or flight instincts would kick in upon seeing a figure like that. I don't want to say it's my favorite line of the movie. (laughs) But, like, it's Oscar yelling at Allison, being like, I'm sorry, I'm so drunk right now. And he just says, you know, all these girls, they were dancing on me. They were feeding me guacamole in all of these ways. And I'm like, in what? all of these ways. I'm like, how many ways, Oscar? How many ways? How many ways can you feed a man guacamole? I wrote, shut up, Oscar, not once, not twice, but thrice. About the amount of times that he was just like, you ever just like want a girl and then she just doesn't want you back? Like, what do you do with that? Like, he's just having a fucking eat, pray, love moment. And it's like, what the fuck's going on? But he eventually comes face to face with Michael. Michael stabs him. And then there's like a big gate with like all these spokes on it. And he lifts him up and puts his chin through the spokes so that he's like being held up by like his face. And Allison finds him, sees him, comes face to face with Michael and runs away screaming. I don't know. I mean, like not to say that Oscar deserved it, but it was a cool kill. I liked it. Yeah, it was an interesting combination of like comedy and tragedy. Allison runs away, yes, but she was not running fast enough for me. I can understand, like, the stopping at various houses and right. knocking, like, yes. But meanwhile, she's just like, eh. I'm pantomiming jogging right now and nobody can see me. But <laughs> the point is, it wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough for me. But thank the Lord, she does knock on a door of a house with people home that let her in. Meanwhile, the rest of the family has all arrived at Lori's house Cops have been called thanks to these helpful neighbors and they are with Allison, but who shows up? Sartain and Hawkins, which I don't want them picking me up, Mm-mm. but they do pick her up and we're getting back and forth between Allison being picked up by these two and the rest of the family at Lori's house. And I wrote, LOL, Karen is in a Christmas sweater because Halloween must be so ruined for her <gasps> that she's wearing a Christmas sweater she's on like, Halloween. let's get this over with. Like, let's get this the fuck <laughs> over with. She's like, fuck Halloween. This is ruined for me. So Ray, Karen, and Lori are down in the bunker under the island weaponizing and Lori's going off. She's like, this is tactical. He waited for this night. He waited for me and I waited for him. So she seems to be very much of the mind that all of this is very intentional. This is where I start losing this movie a little bit. Well, I hate this scene. This scene is horrible. This scene is the worst. I think universally everyone hates (laughs) this. Okay, good. So we have Hawkins driving the police car with Sartain in the front and Allison in the back. And they see Michael in the road. So Hawkins takes a big right turn. They're arguing about whether he's going to hit him or not. And Hawkins runs him over or Mm -hmm. hits him with the car. Hawkins and Sartain get out of the car. Meanwhile, Allison cannot get out of the car because she's in the back of a police car. So Mm -hmm. she does not have a lot of options at this point. And they're arguing over his body. Sartain seems to be more concerned about Michael being alive, where Hawkins seems to be more concerned about him being dead because he's doing nothing but harm. So then Sartain unleashes a knife out of nowhere and stabs Hawkins in the neck. 
It's like a sexy pocket knife. It's it is a, a sexy knife. knife. It's like a pen knife. But it's sexy, you're yeah, right. Yeah, it is. It's super sexy. I'm like, where can I get me one of those? The best weapon in the whole movie, I think. I agree with you. Allison is trapped in the car while Hawkins is bleeding out. Sartain is caressing Michael's face because he's still been struck by a vehicle. So he's still laying on the ground and he's like, so this is what it feels like. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> a plot twist. So then Sartain... <laughs> takes off his mask, puts it on him, and then fucking stands up so Allison can see it in the front of the police car. He's wearing the mask. He is wearing the mask. At first I was like, (laughs) because you know, like this whole movie at this point, Michael's been doing some strange things like off screen kills. And at first I thought that he had killed Sartine and then put on his cop uniform. Oh, okay. That's what I thought because these things kept happening off screen and I didn't know. But then I was like, oh my God. No, Sartain's just crazy. It's Sartain. This is universally hated. Okay. Everyone hates this. I hate this. I don't (laughs) like this. Sartain being fucking crazy does not add anything to this. He takes off his mask, drags Michael's body, puts Michael's body in the backseat with Allison and then drives the fuck off. And then he tries to just give some like, I need to keep him alive because I need to reunite him with Lori and we need to find the root of evil. He just wants to learn from Michael in a way that's like obsessive and nuts. And that doesn't make sense. And just when you're thinking maybe the next scene will be better, it's not. Because it's two cops in a car outside of Lori's house talking sandwiches and brownies. I said, who are these cops and do we care? We don't. We don't. The scene is fully a minute long. We learn a little bit about these people's families, like their preferences. It just feels so weird. And then we cut back to the car and the doctor is filling in all the blanks about his sudden decision to save Michael, his interests in him. Allison is super fucking smart. She catches on quick to the fact that Dr. Sartain is so caught up on the fact that Michael has never said anything. And she's like, well, he talked to me once. And immediately the doc is like, what, what, what? She uses it as collateral to get him to stop the car. And as the doc is trying to, I guess, figure out what it is, he mentions Judith's name. He says, was it Judith? And on that mark, Michael becomes conscious again and uses his big honking feet and his strong lower body to like shove the driver's seat forward and pin Sartine in between the seat and the wheel and then gets out of the driver's side of the cop car and drags Sartine out and then steps on his head and pops it like a balloon filled with strawberry jelly. I was like, yes. (laughs) And meanwhile, Allison runs off into the woods like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. She got so lucky. How do you be in the back of a cop car with Michael and get away from that? That was crazy. Allison's running through the woods. Laurie is securing her house. So a cop car pulls up in front of Lori's house and Ray walks outside of the house and then he opens the driver's side door and it's the one cop dead holding the head of the other cop that has been like de-skeletonized and it just looks like a jack-o'-lantern. And then Michael attacks Ray and kills him from behind it. But I'm like, how did Michael know how to get to Lori's house? Mm. Because... It'd be one thing if the cops were on their way to Lori's house already and Michael just stowed away in the back. No, they were out. Remember, Sartain was taking him to Lori's house. So they weren't far? No, they were posted just outside, like at the base of the driveway. Yes, they were like guarding her. 
they were already at her house when he killed Sartain. But it seemed like the car had just pulled up. Maybe I've just misread that. Maybe I just misread that, but it seemed like Michael had like driven to that house, left those two bodies to be like weird collateral and then killed Ray in the driveway. But I was like, how would Michael know how to get to Lori's house? I mean, your theory makes sense. Then that also leads me to wonder, like, how would he even know where he was if he was unconscious? So maybe he was conscious longer than he led. Was pretending to be? Yeah, seriously, because, I mean, Sartine was giving all that dialogue to Allison about what his plan was. But if Michael was unconscious, he wouldn't know any of that. Right. So maybe it was hearing Judith's name that drew him to action as opposed to full consciousness. So at this point... Karen goes to the bunker and Lori is saddling herself against the front door because she realizes that Michael has killed Ray and is coming to the house. So of course, Lori sends Karen to the basement so she can stay safe in the bunker. And as Lori stays by the door, he breaks through the glass in a very Nightmare on Elm Street style and grabs her head with both hands, like through both panes of glass and pins her against the door then lifts her up by the head so that her feet are no longer touching the ground. But she is holding a shotgun, mind you, and is able to reach it up. Michael grabs it and then she shoots his hand, which sends him back through the door and gives her some temporary freedom. So she immediately goes downstairs to join Karen in the bunker. They're huddled together. They can hear Michael finishing the job breaking in above. And conveniently, Laurie chooses this moment to apologize to her daughter for her parenting decisions. One of those like dramatically conveniently placed apology moments. But when you think you're going to die, who knows what's going to come out of your mouth? (laughs) I'm sure I'd have a lot of things to say. (laughs) So Laurie from the basement aims her gun where she can hear the footsteps up above. I hated this. (laughs) Oh my God. Wait, Because if I'm Michael... Why would I assume that there is a bunker? Wait, I don't think he assumes. I think he's just walking around the house. So like, don't shoot at him. Just let him leave. Like, what is he going to do? Like, he's not going to, what's the worst that's going to happen? He's not going to find you. She has totally betrayed their position. Like, yeah. Why would you shoot through? Just let him leave. Because he can't do anything. Eventually, Lori's like, I have to finish this. So she opens the bunker back up. She goes upstairs, starts scanning the house. There's a closet door scare. But then we start to realize that Lori has these steel doors. Think about like the steel doors in the mall that go down after the store is closed Mm -hmm. after closing time. She has those on every door of her house so that if she searches a room and Michael wasn't there, she can shut it so that Michael can't go into another room. Or if he is in a room, he's trapped in that room. Yeah. And I loved this because I was starting to get a little frustrated with Lori. Like you had 40 years, you made a bunker in your basement and this is what you came up with. But then of course she goes, she clears every room, sets the steel doors down. And then of course you can tell by her face and the layout of her house by what we've seen that there's one room left. It seems like maybe it's the master bedroom. I said, there's no excuse for a mannequin room with the mental health state that you have right now. Because it's just full of mannequins, which we have established are her shooting practice. They should be outside. Mm-hmm. Don't and let them do in the house. So many. Maybe she goes on Facebook Marketplace. People have everything on there. Mannequins seem very menacing. So it's interesting that they are lorries. But when she gets into the mannequin room, we can see that they're all smeared with blood because Michael has taken them and posed them, which I thought was really creepy. Like you could tell like where he grabbed their arms to like raise them and move their bodies to stand around the door and almost greet her. Because she has shot off a part of his hand. So he is bleeding out. Yes. And she knows he's upstairs because she follows the blood. She sees Ray in the closet, very Bob style. 
she opens the slat closet door and Ray's body is just like on the top shelf with his arm hanging down, almost like how Bob flopped down in the original. But my whole thing with Michael Myers is where do you find the time to just take these bodies and pose them as you like? We see him creeping upstairs when Laurie's originally in the basement and he has no body. So he would have had to go back outside, scoop up the body and take it upstairs with him. I mean, it's in the same way how like in the original, when Lori finds the body on the bed, it's not Linda who died in the bed. It's Annie who died in the car and he put her there. He just does these weird things where he just like sets up these bodies as little scares. And it's like, where do you find the time? Yeah. And it is also interesting too, because like most of the time he is characterized as this killing machine. But then he does this shit where it's like, oh, you know that this is spooky and scary and crazy. Like putting a bed sheet over Vicky to make her look like a ghost. Putting Ray up in the closet. It's like, what's going on there? Maybe Sartain went crazy because there really is a lot to think of when it comes to Michael. Michael, of course, pops out behind a mannequin. Him and Lori tussle and he throws Lori out the window and over a balcony. Does that sound familiar? It should. So... (laughs) Finally, Allison enters the house. Both Karen and Michael hear her calling out at the same time. And it's beautifully done because Karen is able to get her down into the bunker. But when he looks back out over the grass, Lori is gone in the same way that Michael was gone in the original. It's such a fucking power play. Michael goes downstairs and grabs a fire poker. He immediately goes into the kitchen and right away he's on to the island. I don't know how he knows. I guess he realizes there's no basement steps. So he's like, it must be under this island. (laughs) But Karen is down there, of course, with Allison. And she can hear Michael trying to rip out the island to get to the stairs. She glances over and sees her childhood shotgun of choice with her little girl initials drawn onto the side. She grabs it and she aims it up as Michael right as he breaks through the island. But then she starts crying and she says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Michael, of course, hasn't shown himself yet. We just know he's up there because he has ripped the island away. We are seeing straight up into the kitchen as Karen is absolutely breaking down, revealing to us that she can't do it. She can't carry through with this. Then Michael shows himself at the top of the steps, I guess feeling comfortable enough, and Karen immediately breaks that sad, wimpy character and shoots him, which is amazing. And then Lori comes out of the shadows saying, Happy Halloween, Michael. They tussle in the kitchen, and Lori ends up smacking him with a pan so that he falls into the bunker. Allison climbs out of the bunker and then Karen starts climbing out of the bunker, but Michael has her ankle and keeps trying to pull her down the stairs. They're both calling to Allison to just run, run away, but Allison instead grabs a knife and stabs Michael's hand until he lets go. Karen pulls a lever while Lori pulls some gas, like, (laughs) levers. I don't know. Turns out her whole house is rigged with, like, gas pipelines. Exactly. So when Karen pulls the lever, all of these metal spokes come shooting out of the top of the bunker, which is locking Michael down into the bunker he can't get through, where Lori had turned on all of this gas and fire, where you come to find out that the bunker wasn't a sanctuary, it was a trap. The entire house goes up in flames. Michael is staring up at the three of them as the house catches. I wrote, this is what good fire looks like at Orphan 2. (laughs) Uh, 
But the three women escape, they flag down a pickup truck, and they drive away in the bed of the pickup truck as the house burns down, and Allison is still holding the bloody knife that she stabbed Michael with, and that's the end of the movie. Boom! So I have quite a few things to follow this that we can discuss. This is proven in the sequel. So Dr. Sartain's theory of Michael having waited for a chance to re-pursue and kill Laurie Strode is the same shared theory with Laurie herself. However, it is clarified in the following sequel, Halloween Kills, between Laurie and Sartain survivor Hawkins that Michael is just a random force of violence and has no personal interest in Laurie beyond that night in 1978. Instead, it is now Laurie and Sartain's obsession that reunites them. What? Wait, Hawkins lives? Yes. (gasps) Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Well, because I think a lot of people are hearkening off what the second movie makes canon. And the second movie in the Halloween franchise makes that Laurie and Michael are related canon, which like feeds into his motive. But this movie makes it like, no, like Michael's just this weird killing machine. And because Laurie is so fixated on Michael, they are just finding each other because she keeps like attracting him. And Sartain's like, I want these two to have a reunion. That's what makes them reunite. And if you're right, when you said that those cops were just posted outside of Mm -hmm. Lori's house, that makes a lot more sense than like, did Michael just drive to Lori's house? How does he know where Lori's house is? Like, what the fuck's going on? But if he was just there, then he wouldn't care. He would just kill whoever's there. Right. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Which I think is more effective, honestly. I think it's like more compelling of him as just like this weird character. It makes a lot more sense with those random killing scenes in the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. He kills, of course, Allison's best friend, but she was on the block babysitting. He didn't have any knowledge that she knew Allison, who was Laurie's granddaughter. That seems plausible with this movie. So obviously we mentioned a couple throughout, but there are several scenes that pay homage to the original 1978 film. So first one, the bus crash with Smith's Grove patients wandering around the street is similar to the opening scene where Loomis and the nurse arrive at Smith's Grove and see several patients milling about in the field. The young boy is killed in the same fashion as Annie is in the original with the strangulation and the knife to the throat. Vicky has a sheet placed over her in the same way that Michael wore over himself to convince Linda that he was Bob. Vicky's boyfriend Dave is impaled by a large knife similar to how Bob is killed. Julian runs out to get help screaming in the same way that Lindsay and Tommy, the two kids from the original, did in the movie. And then Lori falls off the balcony and is later seen missing in the same way that Michael is in the original. So this bit comes from an article titled, Why 2018's Halloween is a slasher movie made for the Me Too era by Jess Joho. And she talks about the evolution of the final girl. Coined by feminist film scholar Carol J. Clover in 1992, the final girl trope included a very specific set of characteristics from 70s and 80s slashers. The classic final girl was virginal, virtuous, and innocent, especially when compared to her sexually promiscuous friends who eventually die. While conventionally feminine and attractive, her final confrontation with the villain also challenged on-screen gender norms, giving her a masculine autonomy that emasculated the male villain. Above all, The final girl phenomenon forced audiences to identify with female victims by sharing in her triumph over trauma. Though the archetype evolved, critics, scholars, and filmmakers still see the final girl as a window into Freudian fears that make great horror movies. Through the ritual of horror movies, we work through our most modern anxieties. John Carpenter's original Halloween, for one, was somewhat unfairly maligned and oversimplified as a moral backlash to women's liberation and the sexual revolution of the 60s. Meanwhile, 2018's Halloween dives into the collective anxiety of stopping the seemingly unstoppable epidemic of male predators. 
In the original, the responsible Lori survives Michael Myers' rampage that kills all of her party-obsessed friends. 1978's Halloween made the final girl's survival and rescue revolve around her victimization. But 40 years later, after those traumatic events, the final girl has grown into a badass woman. 2018's Lori reverses what the finality of the last remaining survivor means, because now the final girl of the Me Too era is not defined by her victimhood, but by her determination to stop male predators from ever hurting people again. In short, she seeks to make the villain the final male predator. Even more important, her survival is no longer defined by her being alone. It's the exact opposite. The timeliness of the new Halloween lies in how it speaks to the real-world moment of women coming together for a similar reckoning. As survivors everywhere seek to end decades of victimization, Lori finally confronts her own predator, drawing strength from the solidarity and shared experience of trauma with other women in her life. The brilliance of Halloween's update to the final girl trope goes well beyond the topicality of the Me Too movement, though. 2018's Halloween was written before the explosion of the Me Too movement in 2017, and it leans into other modern trends in horror. Recent hits like The Babadook and Hereditary, for example, are slowly replacing the final girl archetype with the dysfunctional mother or mothers who are demonized after suffering monstrous trauma. Certainly, gun-toting and reclusive Grandma Lori fits perfectly as a woman who society deemed unfit to fulfill her traditional role as a mother after surviving the Myers. This ostracization is apparently what becomes of a final girl after she endures what Clover calls a process of masculinization. But ultimately, it's not just the victims of slashers that reveal the film's subtextual gender politics. The villain Michael Myers is coded very masculine, evil too, this symbol of what we might call today as toxic masculinity. I mean, his origin story of murdering his own sister with a knife as a kid while she was having sex sounds like some serious incel shit, right? <laughs> Michael Myers can also be seen as an embodiment of the patriarchy itself. Think about what makes Myers so terrifying. We very pointedly never see his face, the blank mask making him not an individual man, but instead a symbol of the inhuman, all-powerful, deathless, societal conceit of masculine dominance. It's only fitting, then, that the Myers, as a symbol of patriarchy, is hellbent on silencing three generations of strode women, Lori, Karen, and Allison, who band together to end his tyrannical predation. It's even more fitting that every institution, from police to the Myers doctor, prove completely inept at stopping him or helping the Strode women. Just when we think we've dealt with the final blow, though, patriarchal bullshit rises from the ashes again. It waves away women's pleas to be heard, believed, and taken seriously as they demand an end to the widespread acceptance of male predators. No matter how hard survivors fight, maddeningly, the men and systems that abuse them still draw their ragged breaths. But 2018's Halloween does leave us with one hope. We final women and girls have been preparing, learning, and remain ready for battle to the death. It's got me feeling a little bit emotional. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I did not see it that way. I mean, I was definitely catching on to generational trauma. But Laurie is very focused on this idea of the boogeyman. You know, of course, she is waiting for Michael, but she mentions the boogeyman a couple of times, which seems to be kind of a catch-all for evil itself, not necessarily just one form of that evil. And I think it makes sense that this can draw connections to like the broader issue of predators and systems in place that keep women from getting justice for the wrongs that have been done against them in a patriarchal society. Yeah. And of course, you know, I love the idea of the three generations fighting against that. It's a very powerful image, kind of like the past, present and future and how they can band together to make sure that they make him the last predator. 
It makes me think of Scream in the sense where we accept that in every movie, it's going to be a different guy behind the mask, but we're still all afraid of Ghostface. Where in this case, it's just this one dude that's like unmovable and unkillable and how that must feel for Lori, knowing that she's doing everything she can, movie after movie after movie, doing all of these things and he just won't die. But I think it's calling to the fact that her trauma won't die. Like, she's not treating her trauma in a way where she can accept what happened to her and move on from it. Like, she always feels like he's just around the next corner. Again, I do like that this movie's realistic in that depiction of stress, like post-traumatic grief. We don't see our final girls after the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, after we see them triumphant in the next scene, we don't see what their next few years looks like. And I appreciate that this movie showed an imperfect final girl. Like, you had even said how in the beginning, when they're at that family dinner... Oh, my God. You know, Allison's in the Honor Society, and Lori comes up and is like, I was in the Honor Society. That line killed me. Because, yes, she was. She was all of these things. And then her life was interrupted. And unfortunately, interruption, to put it lightly, is something that a lot of folks have to deal with, especially women at the hands of predatory men. So this is just one of five timelines in the (laughs) Halloween franchise. I... Just found it so interesting because Elise was peppering me with questions. I was. I was was like, like, I thought Laurie died. Right. (laughs) So I'm going to break down all of these timelines for you because there's five. So we all start with the original 1978 Halloween. The first timeline is that original. Then Halloween 2 that comes out in 1981. And then we're going to skip over three because three has nothing to do with anything. And I'll explain that in a minute. Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers. And then Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. And then Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) So a bunch of movies. And in that timeline, what is depicted is Lori is canonically Michael's sister. We find that out in Halloween 2. She dies between 2 and 4. And then for 4 through 6, we follow her daughter, Jamie, as her uncle tries to kill her. Ooh. Okay. So the next (laughs) timeline is just Halloween 3 season of The Witch, 1982. That is on no continuity with anything else. Because as I described in an episode prior to this, I forget which episode we brought it up. Halloween 3 has nothing to do with Michael Myers. That was the studio's attempt at trying to make the moniker of Halloween an anthology and have it have nothing to do with him specifically, but just a scary movie specifically. And Michael Myers is not in the third one. Mm -hmm. So it's just about a movie of these masks that like eat kids' heads. It has nothing to do with Michael Myers. So that's on its own continuity has nothing to do with Michael. Moving on. We then have a third timeline that has Halloween 1978, the original Halloween 2, 1981, which establishes Michael and Lori as related. And then Halloween H2O, 20 years later, which came out in 1998. And then Halloween Resurrection, which came out in 2002. Now, between Halloween 2 in 1981 and Halloween H2O, 20 years later, there is a 20-year time jump. In that time jump, we learn that Lori faked her death. Oh. And has started a new life in California until Michael finds her. Oh my gosh. Okay. So it's like Lori, as an adult, she has different children, not Jamie from the first timeline, different children. Is she played by Jamie? Yes. Yes. What? Yes. Her as an adult. And it's about how Michael finds her in California and tries to track her down and kill her and her kids because his whole obsession is the family line in this storyline still because they are related because of Halloween 2, which is what establishes them as related. So those movies have nothing to do with the first one. I mean, it keeps Halloween 2, but it ignores four through six. (laughs) All right, so that's the third timeline. 
Then there's the fourth timeline of Halloween 2007 and Halloween 2 2009. And those are Rob Zombie series reboots. They are not including the original. This is the only timeline that doesn't include the original besides Halloween 3. Rob Zombie remade the first one and then remade the second one. And it dives more into Michael's dysfunctional childhood, like abusive dysfunctional childhood, which made him the way that he was. And it dives more into Lori's trauma right after realizing that she is Michael's sister. So it's more of her as a young adult. They're more violent. They're more crazy. And like a lot of people don't like the Rob Zombie reboots because they like the idea that Michael is this almost paranormal killer that you don't understand and that he doesn't have a motive where giving him like a childhood backstory is giving him motive and is giving him more world building when it's more fun when he's just like this weird, wild, crazy killer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't mind the Rob Zombie remakes. I've watched both of them. They dive a little weird in different directions, but not more weird than some of the other Halloween sequels do. But they're on a different timeline because they're not looking at the original. They're remaking the original and the second one. And then we have this timeline, the one that we're on right now, where it's the original Halloween. Then we skip to the Halloween we just covered, Halloween 2018. And then we have Halloween Kills, which came out in 2021. And then Halloween Ends, which is going to come out later this year in 2022. And in this requel reboot, it explores more of the generational trauma and Lori's fixation on killing Michael for good as an adult. Do you think Halloween is really going to end in 2022? I mean, Jimmy Lee Curtis is not going to live forever. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I think they're trying to. I think they had set out after 2018 to like get a couple more out of it. And I think obviously Jamie Lee Curtis is down and is going to do what she can. I mean, Halloween ends if you're naming it that. Yeah. Like, you gotta have a plan. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It seems pretty final. But that's Halloween 2018. What'd you think? Overall, I liked it. I always love the idea of, like, a 40 years later anniversary situation. I think that sets the mood just right. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. It was cool seeing her having grown so much as an actress between the time she was a young woman and being an adult at this time. So it was really cool watching her. I felt like she was a lot more nuanced and cool. And of course, I love Freaky Friday. (laughs) So I'm at prom night too. I'm always ready to see Jamie Lee on screen. Halloween is not my jam. It's not the thing that does it for me, but I can see how it does a lot and it paved the way for so many amazing things that I do love. And it is cool that they've been able to come back to it so many times and change the story because, I mean, I guess Michael Myers has these supernatural elements. And so I think changing the story doesn't change the fact that he's meant to embody most of the time this kind of larger than life evil. And if that's the case, then of course, evil can take many forms and exist in many different timelines. I feel similar to you in terms of I can respect that Michael Myers has a place in horror lore that's not being replaced. And he's obviously infamous. I don't think he's my favorite. I don't think his stories are my favorite in terms of what to follow, what I'm inspired by. But I think Laurie Strode obviously paved the way for so many more final girls of her kind and just being able to like see her resurrected and not remember her as how she was at the end Mm. of the original Halloween, which I remember you and I talking about, about like, oh my God, she just seems so victimized and seeing her like harden Mm -hmm. and not always in the best way, not always in the most badass way, but in like a realistic way and how it just doesn't impact her and impacts everybody around her. Like I really did appreciate that and I appreciated just seeing like how that impacts a family line and how it's all tied together, even if Michael isn't tied to them in the way that the rest of the franchise might suggest. I personally did not like Halloween Kills when I watched it. 
I think it just does a lot of fan service to the original, which is fine, but it does a lot to establish that Michael is Haddonfield's collective enemy, which I don't think they did a good enough job of establishing in this movie. Interesting. They make it seem like there's a wild mob that are all wildly anti-Michael, when like in this movie, it doesn't seem like anyone gives a shit except Hawkins and Lori. And that one lady in a pickup truck eyeing up Aaron and Dana. Yeah. (laughs) In that one scene. Yeah. So oh, yeah, the peace sign. The peace sign. <laughs> I just remember watching Halloween Kills and being like, when is this going to get good? And then it never did. But it's good for a fan service type of way. But like, if you're going into it looking to feel satisfied, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably watch Halloween Ends for sure, just because I care and I want to know. We both established Michael is not our favorite thing. Jamie Lee Curtis is one of our favorite things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll watch what she's in. But Halloween is Halloween. And that's why we gave this to you. We hope you love it. Next week, believe it or not, we are finally getting to our 90s scary movie that we've been putting off for so long because of scheduling things. But we are doing it this time. I think that we're set in stone. We're going to cover it. If you want to stay in the loop as to what that is, definitely make sure you listen out for a podcast release next week or so. Follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast and or feel free to email us with any suggestions, recommendations, whatever at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.